August the 16th, 1948. Wade Hoyt talks about Babe Ruth on the day he died. Fans, we've, I think all of us, rather anticipated the death of the big Bambino. It's been coming on for a long, long while. About a year ago, right a year ago, I think it was August the 3rd, if I'm not mistaken, Babe was here in Cincinnati for that American Legion game that they played out here at Cincinnati last year. And I had the pleasure of spending a day with the Babe. And at that time, he looked particularly sick and ailing, which he was, of course. And I didn't expect him, really, to live until Christmas. But Ruth has tremendous stamina, and did have tremendous stamina. And he just fought off the disease for practically a solid year. I don't think it may have been that an ordinary human being would have lived a year under the same conditions, but I doubt it. Now, Ruth was always like that, a fellow of tremendous capacity for tremendous things. And he, he filled the capacities to the limit. Uh, a lot of people might think that, I uh, hope that you don't misunderstand me whatsoever in talking about Ruth. Uh, I am very, myself, I am very saddened by the big fellow's death. I naturally have sat here all night broadcasting to you with my mind half on Ruth and my mind half on the ball game. And it leaves not a void in my life, I won't say that, because I don't get to see the babe much anymore. And so naturally it wouldn't be as if your best friend died, but after you play with a fellow for a great many years and the fellow has been a very vital factor in anything that you might have undertaken in your life, why, naturally, you become very close to a fellow like that. Ruth was very close to all the ball players who ever played with him on the New York Yankees, and all of us, well, he was the baseball player's hero. He was my hero. He was the fellow who, in past years, right after the Black Sox scandal, rebuilt baseball when the customers frowned upon it. Uh... Then later on, he came into his own as a famous home run hitter. Naturally, he was a famous... In the early 20s, he was a famous home run hitter. But he got, as I always am pleased to say, he was the fellow most responsible for the rise in baseball players' salaries. He created new standards of economics, the new economic standards in baseball. He raised the salaries. He also brought more attention to baseball. He put, I believe, put baseball on a higher plane than it ever had been before the era of Ruth. I am not a moralist. I don't pretend that Ruth was a holier-than-thou sort of an individual because some of his escapades off the field would not bear telling on this radio. They wouldn't bear telling in some living rooms, I suppose. The babe always reminded me of a fellow who, oh, well, just took his fun where he found it, and it wasn't through premeditation as much as it was perhaps through ignorance, let's say, of moral standards. Uh, let's put it that way. He uh, did what he thought was just and right, and some of the things that he thought were just and right were not just exactly what other people would consider along the same lines. Uh, that is why tonight, although I feel Babe Ruth's death very keenly, it really made me nervous in the, around the eighth inning when I knew I had to talk to you about Babe, and I started to perspire up here at the broadcasting table a little bit, and the back of my legs were a little bit weak, because you don't, I can't tell you in 15 minutes, fans. I can't tell you uh, the number of things that I know, the full life story of the, of the big guy, because so much 
happened. So much happened in those years, those 10 years that I spent with him. Actually, more than 10 years. I was with him a year and a half on the Boston Red Sox. And uh, so much happened in that time that all those things came back in a rush to me all at one time. And I was uh, not in, uh, entirely capable of comprehending the fact that the big fellow is, is dead. The, comp uh, the, the implications there are tremendous. And the, I know the flood of publicity that will come out now is life story. And, and I have read, I read a, an article not long ago. I read a piece in the paper here in one of the Cincinnati papers written by one of the uh, syndic uh, syndicated story that had more discrepancies in it than, than I have ever seen in one story regarding Ruth. It was evidently a piece dashed off in a hurry to beat the gun by somebody that wanted to get something in about Ruth. It wasn't a local writer at all. It, was, uh, it wasn't Nick Denton, if you're thinking of that. Nick Denton, I thought, wrote a beautiful piece about Babe the other, the other night in the Time Star. Now, I know that's an opposition paper to the Cincinnati Post here, whom we, whom this station in Cincinnati represents and who, whom I work for most directly. But nevertheless, credit where credit is due. I thought Nick Denton wrote a beautiful piece about Babe the other evening. And, ba and Denton hit the nose hit the uh, nail on the head because he said what I would have said all along and that is that Babe led a mighty full life Babe died this evening, yes but I, I think as we would talk if I met you on a street corner or, or if you'd be a little intimate with me and not feel that you are hearing a prepared, paid-for show because this is not I am telling you my private, personal thoughts I am talking you, to you just as if wherever you are I was standing next to you or sitting next to you or sitting across the room talking to you about Babe Ruth. And I would like you, as an understanding and broad-minded person, to know that. That uh, uh, Babe did everything there was to do, I think, in life. Uh, he was not cheated. He led a full, a mighty full life. There wasn't anything that I think that... Uh, anything that you would want or anything that he would want that wasn't fulfilled. And so the fellow died not wanting. There was only one thing that Ruth was disappointed in. That was the fact that he was never given a chance to manage a Major League Baseball team. That was his biggest disappointment. I know that because he's told me that. And he did hold a resentment toward the game that he practically saved before they never gave him a chance. My opinion on that was merely that they should have given him a chance at some point or other. He may have failed because he had extreme ideas. He may not have been a good handler of baseball men. He, there, may, there may have been some uh, weaknesses in his system somewhere, and he may have failed. But nevertheless, uh, then baseball would have been able to say at least, well, we did give the fellow his chance, and Ruth would have been satisfied to have had that chance. But you know a very peculiar thing. Uh, it strikes me as I sit here talking to you, that there were two fellows on that New York club, Ruth and Gehrig, who seemed to have been designed by the great maker and the, the great decider to have fulfilled a mission in this great game of baseball, and Gehrig and Ruth. It's strange that two fellows batting one right after the other in the batting order of the New York Yankees of 1927 considered, and I'm speaking factually now, not through pride or not through my own emotions so much, I'm speaking to you factually, considered by many the greatest baseball team to ever step on a baseball field. Think of the fact, fans, that two fellows, 
who batted one right after the other, and they alternated at times. There was sometimes Ruth batted fourth and sometimes Gehrig batted fourth. But two fellows that died the way they died, suffering for over a year, and two of the greatest sluggers and home run hitters that you have ever seen in shoe leather. And to think that those two fellows passed away, Gehrig suffering the way he did in his latter years from infantile paralysis, and then Ruth suffering from cancer and dying the way he did. And yet they seem to have had missions in life. Gehrig seemed to carry the, the mission of uh, sort of the American boy, a, a very different type fellow than Babe Ruth, very as, as far apart as the two poles. Gehrig was the type of a fellow who uh, was more domesticated, uh, thoroughly a fellow attached to his parents and his mother, and a fellow who uh, lived a very quiet and conservative life. Ruth was more the John L. Sullivan type of fellow, robust and around and out. Loud and here and there and 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 the world the world was Ruth's oyster and he and he devoured his oysters as boy he could eat barrels of them if you're putting it in allegorical terms and he was certainly a different type than than Gehrig and yet it seems that Ruth had his following Gehrig had his following and uh, Gehrig came in into baseball as a kid that came up from nowhere the strange thing both of them came up from nowhere and followed two different paths. Gary coming up from the uh, poor parentage, living up near the polo grounds in the Yankee Stadium most of his life, and never having seen a big league ball game, despite the fact that he lived so close to those big league parks, for the reason that they never had enough money to get into the parks. They didn't have not whole days back in Gehrig's day. And then Gehrig working his way up to the position that he attained in baseball. And then you think of Ruth coming out of St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore, which was more or less an, a school for wayward boys. Not that Ruth was wayward so much as that his parents his, were unable to take care of Babe, and Babe was allowed to shift for himself when he was just a youngster, and consequently the Baltimore authorities, to prevent Babe, Babe from becoming a charge of the city, uh, placed him in St. Mary's Industrial School, and then on up through his life with Jack Dunn, and on up uh, with the Baltimore Orioles to the Boston Red Sox, then over to the Yankees, and the years he played with the Yankees. And... Ruth came to the big league practically ignorant of the w ways of the world. He didn't know. I don't think when Ruth reached the big league, he, he uh, it could distinguish by right or wrong. Lots of times, man in his heart can distinguish by, uh, between right or wrong. It's sort of a native instinct, instinct in a man to know the difference between right and wrong. But the pressure of glory upon Ruth overrode any instinct he might have had in that direction. Now, touching just back to that 1927 and 1928 Yankee Club. Uh, listen, is this striking or is it not? I'll continue about Ruth in a moment and tell you a few things about the lighter side of his career. But nevertheless, just consider this. I often consider the 28 team of the Yanks as good as the 27 team. And uh, here are the fellows who have died. Imagine this, from one team, a great team. Ruth Gehrig, a catcher by the name of John Grabowski, uh, Urban Shocker, a great pitcher, Herb Pennock, another great pitcher, Tony Lazari, a great second baseman, Miller Huggins, a great manager, Gene Robertson, a substitute third baseman who disappeared. No, I don't know whether he's dead or not, but nobody ever heard from him. And the traveling secretary of the New York Yankees at that time, Mark Roth. All of those people who were intimately connected with the 27 team and the 28 team have passed on. And that if it was back around 1890, 98 or 99 or something or 1906 you might rather expect it 
But after all, 28 years, uh, 1928 is only 20 years ago, and I think that all that fellow, all those fellows have gone. So I played on those teams. Kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> but I first saw Babe Ruth when I jo joined the Boston Red Sox. That was back in 1919. Ruth, you know, in my estimation, uh, was the one player in the history of baseball who could be admitted to the Hall of Fame on two counts. One as a pitcher and later as a home run hitter. Of course, he made his big reputation as a home run hitter. But nevertheless, he was a marvelous pitcher. He holds records in pitching. And un I believe until Lefty Grove broke the left-handed pitching record, I think Ruth had the best winning percentage of any left-hander in the business. I'm not quite certain of that. I might be a few points off there, but I believe it was something like that until it may be that Hubble broke it later on, too. But for a long while, Ruth held the left-handed pitching winning percentage record. And uh, I first saw him. He was a combination pitcher and hitter. That was when Ed Barrow, who was managing the Red Sox in 1919, made that shift from Ruth to the outfield, and Ruth, uh, Ruth to the outfield, and Ruth sometimes as pitcher. When I arrived in Boston, he was doing, he was playing left field more than he was pitching. He, he came in to fill in some uh, pitching turns, but he stayed out there. I know I was just a kid, and those were the days before uh, the lively ball, of course. And those were the days when the, a home run was a premium, not today when it's held so cheaply. And I remember one particular series, one of the first series that I ever saw Ruth play. And that was against the old Chicago White Sox, the team that turned crooked. But nevertheless, they were still trying to win the, the pennant. That was 1919. And lefty Claude Williams, one of the fellows that turned crooked, was pitching for the Chicago White Sox. And despite the fact that Williams uh, turned out sour, he nevertheless was a great left-hander. And the game, it was the first game of a doubleheader in Boston. And Ruth came up to the plate in the ninth inning and hit the ball over the left field fence. Now, to most baseball fans, that, uh, well, that wouldn't mean as much to a baseball fan as it would to a baseball player. But don't forget that back in 1919, that just wasn't done. Left-handed batters knocking him over the left field fence. And he just, just didn't hit it over the left field fence. He hit it off a left-handed pitcher over the left field fence. And he was the left-handed batter, and the ball carried a tremendous distance. And even the White Sox, uh, in between the games, all rushed into the clubhouse. They were trying to win the pennant, mind you. And they rushed into the clubhouse to congratulate Ruth on that particular sock. Because even they had to admit there was a tremendous feat. And that was with more or less the dead ball. And that ball didn't go so far. There are plenty of stories. Now, here's another thing why Ruth is uncanny. This epitomizes, I believe, the, the entire life of Ruth. He had the knack of doing the most uncanny things at the most uncanny times. And even in death, if I may mitigate the, my uh, talk a little bit here, even in death, the fellow had to be uncanny, did he not? Here two weeks ago, or is it two weeks ago, the Babe Ruth story opened in New York. The, the, the first night of the picture, the picture, the Babe Ruth story, July the 26th, it opened in New York City. The moving picture of Babe Ruth's life, or it's supposed to be, I understand the picture is only carries some incidents of his life, and uh, more or less where he sympathizes with kids all through the picture, which he did, too. That was part of his life, but not to the degree 
uh, to the degree that the picture shows. But there he was, a sick man. He went down to see the the opening of that picture in a theater in New York. And here was the big fellow, could hardly stand up. He had to be assisted into the, into the theater. And you might say that was his last real physical exertion. He was taken home from seeing the, pic seeing the picture of his own life, taken home and then taken to the hospital. And by George dies just when that picture is being released. Now, after seeing it, now, that is the way that he did everything. I mean, it, it, it's strange. I know it. But uh, if I was talking to you in your living room, as I said before, uh, I would tell you that. It, it, it's a strange thing that you think that the big babe had to die two weeks after the picture was made. Or not made, but uh, released. And that's the way he always was. He was an uncanny. He'd, hit, he'd, he'd appear before a large crowd on a Sunday. And he'd hit a couple of home runs and satisfy somebody on a Monday in Boston when the Yanks would go to Boston when the Red Sox were last in the league. And uh, Monday there'd be five or six hundred or a thousand people out there, maybe strike out a few times. Wouldn't look so good. But put a big crowd out there and he was Ruth again. He'd hit. And it came down into the clutch. And yes, he's failed in a pinch. You shouldn't do. I couldn't sit here and say that he came through. He used to lead the league in strikeouts. He used to strike out more than any batter in the league. And... Uh, he could, he could be struck out. George Uly was one of the greatest pitchers ever pitched to him. But nevertheless, he, he can, if you, you must consider the overall pattern of his life. It wasn't that Ruth hit some uh, longer home runs than Greenberg or Fox or Hornsby or Ralph Kiner or anybody that you care to mention. Uh, that isn't the deal at, at all. Ruth, I do, I do think his longest home runs were longer than the uh, longest home runs of other batters. But I also believe... Uh, that other batters have hit lots of other home runs longer than lots that Ruth have hit. Don't forget he hit 714 in his life and lots of those were dunkers that just did get into the seats. The little cupcake home runs, those little things that fall in there. He hit quite a number of those, but by the same token it was because Ruth could hit him so far and so often and over the long period of years which he did that made him the home run hitter he was. And, and the stories about Ruth are, are, are simply wonderful. Like, for instance, back in 1928, I believe it was, the spring of 28, when he was holding out for more dough. And he, when he held out for that $85,000 contract. Well, it, it so happened around that time, as I believe, there was some strikes, union strikes, or there was some unemployment somewhere. And uh, he, Ruth was never, he was never the kind of a fellow that was conscious of anything that was taking place uh, outside of his own realm. He, he didn't know much about politics, neither did he care. And uh, uh, he was down south this year, and he, you could see he was dying to play, and, but he wouldn't play be, because he was affer, uh, afraid that he might hurt a leg or something. And if he hurt a leg, not under contract, but then the club wasn't compelled to pay uh, any expenses for the big guy. So if he, while he was holding out, he wouldn't, he wouldn't play. Well, finally, he met a fellow named Bill Slocum, who was a newspaper writer, New Yorker sports writer, and they were going out the side door of the Princess Martha Hotel in St. Petersburg, and Ruth and, and Slocum, Slocum used to write articles under Ruth's name. Well, and Ruth said, hey, come here, Bill. He says, uh, what do you think I better do about this contract? They're offering me 80,000 bucks, and he says, I want 85,000. By George, Rupert's not going to get away with that. And Slocum didn't know what to say. That was putting Slocum on the spot. He didn't want to be... Uh, cast a deciding word in the 
contract of Ruth, so more or less kidding, he said to Ruth, well, you know, baby said, a lot of people unemployed around the country. He says, you know, a lot of people up there in New York are just begging for jobs. There's bread lines a lot of places. He said, by George, $80,000, quite a bunch of dough. Ruth says, by George, I never thought of that. And he went upstairs, he called Rupert, went upstairs and signed his contract. But, uh, well, I see we're a little late with station identification, and I'll just tell you that this is station WCPO Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati's exclusive news and baseball station, is that right? Now, a lot of people also believe that Ruth was just a hitter. That was not so. Ruth was a pretty good man on bases. He could run the bases, but naturally he didn't have to run the bases when he had uh, pretty good hitters coming up behind him because those fellows coming up behind him were the types of fellows that would hit the ball into the into the stands. So Ruth never did steal many bases, but when he wanted to, he was an excellent base runner. Well, he wanted to know, did Ruth have any hobbies? Well, yes, Ruth had, well, golf was his hobby, naturally. And surprisingly, for the big guy, he kept all his clippings. Now, in his home up there in Riverside Drive in New York, he has a little study fixed up or a club room, and he has the prized pictures of his hanging on the walls and these immense scrapbooks that he has saved all through his baseball career. And if you want to see something, you should see the letters from uh, dignitaries and celebrities that he has and pictures of these people hanging on that wall of his up there. And he was very much at home in his own way. Now, I've, I, here's one of the inaccuracies I read in a story. Uh, that uh, Ruth was a great uh, man about town, great gad about, fellow went out a great deal, and was always here or there in the other place. Now, oh, don't you ever believe it. I don't think that you ever heard of Ruth in a nightclub in his entire existence. Uh, Ruth uh, used to partake once in a while of the flowing bowl. That's undeniable. That's funny true. But on the road, for instance, when he had opportunities to go to nightclubs, he never went to a nightclub. Ruth stayed in his own suite of rooms in the hotel. A funny, very funny story, I think, about that. It's not so funny as it is odd that, of course, the babe wasn't without ego. He always considered he was Ruth, and that was that. And he tried to act the part a great deal. Don't ever forget that Babe Ruth is one of the best-dressed men in the country. Yes, sir, boy, he was one of the best-dressed men in the country, and he knew how to dress, too, all except that cap he used to wear around, but he never would shed that. But if you ever saw Ruth in a straw hat, you'd never want to see him in the straw hat a second time. The cap was much more becoming. But nevertheless, he uh, didn't go out on the road. And he, the Yankees, to satisfy the big guy, used to get him a suite of rooms. And that was for two purposes. That was because they always knew where he was. They always knew where he was uh, because he'd always stay in the hotel. And uh, he had a... Red, a red, a very red uh, dressing gown and red Moroccan slippers, and he'd sit up there in, in his room after the game, up in his suite of rooms, and he'd entertain like the king, the Maharaja. And the door was always open. There were never any locked doors in the room, and I, for instance, like in the book Cadillac Hotel in Detroit, uh, with Babe holding court, why, it was nothing to see 200, 250 people pass through those rooms during the night, getting signatures and Babe, treating them to this and treating them to that, 
the king was holding court always. And he never had, uh, he never went out of New York, any of those public places at all. He was never seen around those places. If he ever went to a place to, to maybe to take a little drink of beer or something, there was a place named Donahue's over in New Jersey. That babe used to cross the river in Donahue, build a special room in that place for babe to go. He'd go over in that room with his party of friends and his wife and perhaps a few other friends and go over there and, and that's where they'd have dinner. Over in Donahue's, and that room when Ruth wasn't in it was locked. Nobody ever went in it and Donahue kept everybody out of it. Well, we just get on to these things about the babe. But, uh, old babe was, babe was really, I could tell you many funny story about the babe. He, he, uh, he used to get mixed up in language quite a lot. Uh, uh, I never forget the time that down in, uh, my, he had a big, oh, I forget, I don't know whether it was a Cadillac or a Packard, I forget what kind of a car it was, but nevertheless, he pulled into a gas station down in, uh, Miami or Miami Beach or someplace in Florida. I think it was Palm Beach, so that's where it was, it was Palm Beach, and one of the 400 of Palm Beach happened to pull into the same gas station in a Rolls Royce, and while the, the uh, tenant was uh, filling up the gasoline tank of the Rolls Royce, he happened to drop a remark, as an attendant might be, that that was Babe Ruth and that big red job next uh, to uh, the Rolls Royce, and they, of course, curiosity got the better of the, of the, the lawnette in the next car, and so... She leaned out of the car and said to Mr. Ruth, just to make conversation, she said, oh, Mr. Ruth, she said, uh, I admire your car so much. And said, uh, could you tell me, are those brakes, uh, those four-wheel brakes, just the time of the new four-wheel brakes, she said, uh, are they hydraulic or are they mechanical? Ruth looked around at her and says, Madame, he says, I haven't the slightest consumption. <laughs> well, it reminds me of the time, too, back... In 1933, right after the, uh, well, right during the World Series of 1933, Washington played the New York Giants, if you recall, and the Giants beat Washington in the 1933 series. But Ruth went down there as sort of a sports writer. He was asked to cover the series, although he had somebody doing the writing for him. And uh, Babe was invited around the White House uh, to meet President Roosevelt. Roosevelt was serving his first year in office that year, 1933, and He'd always been, the president had always been a great baseball fan, and, and uh, so Babe was ar invited around the, to meet uh, President Roosevelt with a number of other newspaper men. So Babe went around to the White House, and, and uh, he was ushered into President Roosevelt's presence, and, and uh, President Roosevelt uh, extended his hand and greeting and said, uh, why, Babe Ruth, if I'm not glad to see you, he said, how are you, Mr. Ruth? And Ruth said, oh, he said, I'm fine, great press. So the president said, well, perhaps you don't recall, Mr. Ruth. He said it was back in 1920. He says when Governor Cox and I were running for office, and he said I was running on the ticket with Governor Cox, and running, I was running for vice president. And he said, I met you before in Binghamton. You probably don't recall that in Binghamton, New York, Mr. Ruth. He said, uh, if you recall, he said our trains arrived simultaneously at the Binghamton station, and he said there was a crowd of some six to 8,000 people down at this station to greet us, and uh, he said the, we alighted from the train, and Governor Cox and our secretaries proceeded to the hotel, and up in the hotel, I happened to turn to Governor Cox, and I said, Governor, I said, uh, don't, didn't you think that was wonderful down at the station, the way those 
so many people, such a large turnout to greet us. Why, sure, we're going to be quite popular in this town. And uh, before Governor Cox could answer, why, uh, Governor Cox's secretary turned around to Ruth, uh, to uh, uh, Roosevelt, and said, "Why, Mr. Roosevelt?" He said, uh, "I'm uh, hate to tell you this." He said, "But you know," he said. That crowd wasn't actually down there to meet you and Governor Cox. Babe Ruth is playing an exhibition game in town today. They were actually down there to see Babe Ruth. And then the President Roosevelt turned around to Babe and said, Oh, Babe, he says, can you imagine a thing like that? Babe, what do you think his answer was? Turned to Roosevelt and said, Ha, ha, yeah, Pres, he says that happens all the time. <laughs> oh, he's had, he's had, he's had many, a, many a session with, with presidents and queens and different things. And, I mean, legitimate queens. <laughs> and, uh, but it's too bad to see the big fellow gone. Now there was a misunderstanding too. Uh, the fellow had was entirely uncanny in his prediction. You take uh, back in 1926. The Yankees had finished uh, bad seventh in 1925, and they weren't in. Well, Westbrook Pegler riding down, and he was a sports writer in those days. He came down to visit the Yankee camp in the spring of 26 and said the Yankees were just a mob of individuals and they would be lucky to finish seventh in the, in the American League that year. Well, we started uh, up with the Brooklyn Dodgers. We were going to play the Brooklyn Dodgers on the way north that year, and we beat them about five straight ball games. And we arrived in Montgomery, Alabama, and Dazzy Vance pitched against Herb Pennock, I believe it was, and Herb Pennock beat Dazzy Vance three to two. So after the ball game, that was the sixth straight loss we had handed Brooklyn. After the ball game, going back to the hotel, we were, uh, Joe Dugan, Babe Ruth, myself, and Pennock were riding in a taxi cab, and Ruth was kind of guffawing around about the whole thing. He says, hey, he says, you know, he says, by George, he says, if we can beat this club, meaning the Brooklyn club, the, the remainder of the games of this uh, exhibition schedule, we'll win the pennant. Yeah, I understand, and I just wonder what, passed, what was passing through the big boy's mind. I mean, he was, I say, he was always uncanny in his predictions, just like pointing to center field up there in Chicago and hitting the ball off route into the center field bleachers. And he was that way. And I just thought that I was sitting here while I was broadcasting tonight, and I was thinking to myself, could have been possible that Babe knew that he just had one more day to live? And I wonder what his thoughts were, and down through the years, down through the ages. And if he remembered, and all these things that happened to him in the past came back to life, thinking way back in Jacksonville in 1920, when he hit that ball across the racetrack uh, in 1920, and they went out there and measured it, and they measured some 500 and some odd feet. The time that he hit the rain, the uh, fire barrel up in the top of the right field section of the grandstand right field bleachers in the Yankee Stadium, that was on the last row of a very huge, very huge bleachers. It would have carried far, far over the right field bleachers here at, at Causley Field. And uh, the home run... Uh, a home run that uh, he hit over the roof. That was in left field, too, in the White Sox Park. In, uh, I don't forget the year, though, but it was over the left center field roof, and that stand is double-decked, and it stands back there quite a distance. Then uh, the time in Chicago that Mark Roth, who was also dead, whom I mentioned earlier, rushed down to the bench and said to Miller Huggins, said, Miller, if we don't get this game over pretty quickly, we're going to miss that train for New York. And this was around 6.30, a quarter, 7 at night, and Babe was just picking up a bat, and he turned around to Mark Roth, and he says, I'll, it was the 13th inning, he said, I'll get the I'll get the ball game over for you, Mark. And he went up to the plate and hit the ball into the right field seat, 
on the first pitch and put us ahead and then Pennock held him in the last of the 13th and we won the ball game. Uh, then, uh, you know, Babe, you, people want to know whether Babe was superstitious and whether he alibied. Yes, Babe was superstitious and he did alibi a lot. There wasn't any doubt about that. When he'd get in a slump, he'd look for little things to bring him out of it, little things to satisfy his ego, I suppose. He wouldn't, uh, naturally, when he was in a slump, Babe had that type of ego. He wasn't a swell-headed guy. He was just, he just had that super ego as a hitter. And consequently, when he'd get in a slump, he wouldn't blame his own ability. He wanted to look around to blame it on the first thing that came uh, within his attention, I guess. For instance, uh, you never knew that Ruth was a great snuff-taker. He uh, used snuff to a great, uh, uh, to a great extent. Uh, he used to use some snuff called Copenhagen. And I uh, mean, uh, uh, he put that snuff up his nose, and when he when he would sneeze afterwards, it sounded like Ferdinand the Bull. But uh, at any rate, uh, he came in the clubhouse in the Yankee Stadium one time, and he had a, uh, said he had a pain in his stomach. Oh, he had a very bad pain in his stomach. So he went up to Doc Woods, our trainer. He was in a bad slump right at this time, and he wasn't hitting much. And he went up to Doc Woods, our trainer, and he said, Woody. He said, what have you got for pain in the stomach? So Woody said, well, I might give you a little bicarbonate of soda, babe. He said, uh, only Woody called it bicarb. I'll give you a little bicarb, babe. When uh, babe said, what's that bicarb stuff? And uh, Woody said, why, babe? He said, that's uh, just a little powder I mix up in water. And, and he said, uh, it'll relieve the uh, congestion in your stomach. You'll feel a little better. And babe said, all right, fix me up a jug of that stuff. So babe down to mug of bicarbonate of soda and I guess it had the desired effect because he felt better immediately and he went out and he hit a home run. Well, ever after that, he insisted on a drink of bicarbonate of soda before every ball game because he considered it super... He, I guess he considered it lucky. You know, Ruth would never eat in the main dining room for... Uh, not because he was snooty or anything like that, but people used to bother him so much that he never could get time to eat or never get his dinner down. Of course, they do say Ping Bodie used to room with him back. He was the one that coined the expression. Ping Bodie used to room with him way back in the early 20s. Ping was quite a character himself, Ping Bodie. I don't know if you remember him or not. A little Italian fellow from the coast, a little round man, looked like a billikin. But they were a great pair, Ruth and Bodie. And one day, somebody wanted to know whether Ping was rooming with Ruth. And Ping says, for goodness sakes, no. He says, I only room with his suitcase. <laughs> but there we developed a superstition on the Yankees about rooming with Ruth. Later on, nobody would room with him because all the fellas like Ping Bodie, Bobby Raw, uh, Chick Buster, and these different roommates that he had from time to time, Jimmy Reese, uh, Billy Wer, I don't know if Billy Werber room with him or not, Jimmy Reese, but they were all let go. I mean, Ruth would laugh, but the roommates didn't. So nobody wanted a room with Ruth because they were superstitious about that. All these stories are about the big babe and about his home runs. He hit, he hit a home run in Detroit. He hit it over the right field fence. Well, the ball happened to land in the uh, passageway to a street out there and continued on downtown. Somebody chased it on a bicycle. They said that was the longest home run ever hit. Now, that's serious. I mean, somebody wrote in one time when I told that story, said something about a home run being hit into a boxcar, and they closed the door in the boxcar, and the train started, and the home run went all the way to Milwaukee or something. 
Well, I mean, that that's more or less of a joke, but this one was hit over the right field fence and rolled down the street, and some kid chased it on a bicycle, and Ruth would give a kid five bucks to be brought around a home run ball that he got in the street because Ruth saved all those balls, and he'd give the kid five bucks and a pair of passes. And somebody one time wanted to know about the home runs hit out here at Crosley Field in around 1921 when the Yankees came here to, to Crosley Field to play an exhibition game. I understand that the home plate in those days was some perhaps 40 feet uh, behind where it is at the present time, and Ruth hit the ball over the center field wall, which was in those days was quite a feat. Now, I don't know that to be true. Somebody said you were with the Yankees at the time, so why would you know that? Well, I tell you this. People are under a little... Uh, the home plate was 21 feet further back than it is at the present time. But uh, you see, when the Yankees went on an exhibition trip, they stopped off. Now, for instance, the Yankees might come from the, uh, New York to come to Cincinnati to play an exhibition game and then hop a train for Chicago after the game. Well, they send just the required amount of pitchers to pitch the exhibition game, and the other pitchers wouldn't come to the exhibition town. They'd be sent on ahead to the town that the team was going to open in. So I wasn't there here. I didn't see Ruth do that back in 1921, but they tell me he parked a couple. But I... Yeah, uh, to show you uncanny things, too, I mentioned this the other day on a broadcast. This might be repetitious for somebody else. But I don't know. I think it was Barnhart. If, if it was Barnhart or... Anyway, it was a third baseman for Pittsburgh. And the Yankees were playing an exhibition game in Pittsburgh. That was the days in the old park. And the right field fence was a tremendous distance from the home plate. That was before the right field pavilion was erected and cut off part of right field. And Ruth was a big hero in those days. And... Of course, and everybody wanted to see what made the big guy tick. So uh, he didn't hit a home run. They had 26,000 out for this exhibition game. And it was more or less of a joke game. Everybody was having a good time, more or less. But Ruth didn't hit any home runs in this game this particular day. And uh, the last time at bat, why, whoever was pitching, I don't forget who it was, Lee Meadows. Lee Meadows and... Uh, or uh, I forget who the pitcher was over there, but nevertheless, they got two strikes in Ruth. They pitched him another ball, and Ruth popped it up. And it was a, a foul fly outside of third base, and whoever the third baseman was went over there under the ball. It wasn't Ty's trainer. It was before trainer arrived in Pittsburgh. Uh, but dropped the ball deliberately. Being good sport, this is third baseman for Pittsburgh, realized that the fans had come out to see Ruth hit a home run, and he was going to give the babe another chance if possible. Now, if you're a ball player, you understand that if, even if you lob the ball up to the plate, it's very difficult to hit a ball a long way, probably more difficult than if you don't know what's coming because it makes you over-anxious. And just to say that they laid one in there for any particular batter to hit doesn't mean that the batter can hit it. That is out of the park. It's really a tremendous feat, even if you know what's on the ball or how fast it's going to be thrown or what it's going to do to hit it out of the park. That's not always possible. So the third baseman dropped the ball deliberately. It was just an exhibition game. Everybody had a good laugh. And they allowed Babe to take another swing. Babe hit the ball, oh, a country mile over the right field fence in Pittsburgh when it was way back. And you can imagine how that thrilled the people over there because that's the type of a feat that couldn't be done 99 out of, uh, couldn't be done once out of 100 times, even if you knew what was coming. Well, and somebody else suggested that I talk about my trip to Japan with the babe. I didn't go on the, uh, to Japan with babe. 
Babe went, went some 10 years later. He went around 1922. That was Gehrig and, and Babe and Simmons and that bunch who uh, went over there with Babe. I didn't go on that trip. I went back in 1922. Uh, but you know, Babe, boy, on that trip, I'll tell you a hot story uh, about that. Over in Japan, well, I was up in Ruth's apartment one night. Well, get this. I was up in Ruth's apartment one night, and Ruth was telling me about the trip to Japan and China, and he was telling me uh, about the time down in his, his travels down in uh, in the Philippine Islands. And uh, he was he kept on talking, and you well, if you'd heard the big fella talk, you could understand what I, I'm trying to explain to you. But anyway, he was sitting up there, and he was saying, "Oh, you know, we were down there in a." Uh, the Filipinos, he says, and those Hawaiians down there, he says, why, they gave us a pretty good game. And then Mrs. Ruth would stop the conversation, and she would say to the babe, uh, not Hawaiians, babe, Filipinos. And babe said, all right, then, Filipinos. And he says, so we were down there, there in the Philippine Islands, and he says, it was Gomez and myself and Earl Whitehill and the rest, and he says, and, uh, those Hawaiians, and Mrs. Ruth would say, not, uh, Hawaiians, babe, uh, Filipinos. And Babe said, uh, all, all right, Filipino. He said, so just we played him out there one day. He said they had kind of a fresh pitcher pitching for him. He said they, you know, he was going to get out the big Babe Ruth. And he said, finally, I hit one off and hit it over the center field wall. He says, well, those Filipinos, he said, those Hawaiians, he says, they were pretty. And she says, not uh, Babe, for the third time. Not Hawaiians, Filipinos, Babe. And he says, Filipinos? What the heck's the difference? He says, why does it make any difference? I hit the home run, didn't I? So he's telling about, he's telling also about New Year's Eve, I believe it was, in, in Manila Harbor. And they had a, the American, the American boat was docked, and they were going to have this party on the boat. And the boat was to sail that night. And, and there was Mrs. Gomez, Lefty Gomez, and Mrs. Gomez. And Mrs. Gomez had the seat to the left of the babe. And uh, they were passing caviar. And every time that the caviar was passed, why, it seemed that Babe said, gee whiz, says every time that caviar pole was passed, he says, get her to come around to the left, he says, and, and uh, he says, get to Mrs. Gomez, and Mrs. Gomez says, she'd scoop out that caviar, he says, she'd drop it on that plate there, and by George, every time the pole got to me, it was empty. He says, why, that Mrs. Uh, uh, Gomez says, uh, he used to tell us to Lefty, he says, uh, Lefty says, that wife is, he says, she would eat that caviar like a seagull eating fish. He says, she'd just go, galop, galop, galop. And he says, down with the wall of caviar. I said, I never even got a spoonful all night long. <laughs> but he was a master. There wasn't any doubt about it. You can always, I always remember St. Louis. Uh, and what fun he used to have. He's just a big, the babe was just a big overgrown kid. Just a big, good-natured guy. And uh, carried that uh, sort of spirit right on all through his life. Uh, he used to like spare ribs a great deal. And down in St. Louis... Why, whenever we leave St. Louis, he used to leave from a little station out of town, and, and the babe would always send the, uh, some messenger of his ahead in a taxi cab, and they, he knew some German woman down there and in uh, St. Louis. He used to cook up these spare ribs. And boy, I'll say they were good, but he, he used to order racks and racks and racks and racks of spare ribs, and she used to send them down cooked in cartons down to the Bremen Avenue, I believe it was, the train down there, and then the, he'd hold uh, forth in the in the uh, in the compartment on the train, and he'd sell these spare ribs at a half a, do a half a dollar a rack to the ball players. He wouldn't give you any; he'd make you buy them. But all the ball players would rather eat the spare ribs than go in the dining car. And, 
And Babe was worried. He was supposed to try to get even on this thing, doesn't he? Well, nevertheless, he, he loved his spare. He'd sit there in the hole. He'd just chew on those things and what a time he had. But his later years, I don't know whether he was spent, whether he spent lowliness or not. Sometimes I think maybe his heart was a little bit broken because he never landed back in baseball. I could sit here and tell you story after story. I, there's so many of them. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the talk, uh, Ruth and Gehrig were opposite as the poles. One, uh, they were much different in character. And uh, Ruth was a little burned up at Gehrig at one time because uh, Ruth took Gehrig on an exhibition tour and, and signed him for one of these exhibition tours and paid Gehrig, uh, I think it was fifteen or $20,000 uh, for this exhibition tour. And on this tour, why, it seems that uh, Gehrig Ruth always claimed that he knew how to get the money. Whether that was true or not, I don't know. But nevertheless, he, uh, he got to exacted some kind of a promise out of Gehrig that Gehrig wouldn't sign a contract with the Yankees until he talked it over with Ruth. Ruth felt that Gehrig was underpaid. But nevertheless, Gehrig popped up signing his contract in New York and didn't say a word to Babe about it. And Babe said, uh, so a lot of us ladies should all trouble with that guy. I'm not going to do anything about him anymore. He can go his own way now. There wasn't actually any uh, open enmity be uh, between the uh, two. They liked each other, for that matter, but nevertheless, they weren't the pals that they were before then. Don't you think that Ruth didn't show Gehrig a lot about hitting? I must say this. One of the great things, one of the great things was watching Ruth's development, not alone as a ball player, but as a man and as a character. Uh, he grew in stature each year. Uh, he started from nothing, as you know. And as each year went by, Ruth added a little. Not that he was particularly cultured. He wasn't. He didn't know some of the, what we call the higher forms of culture. But uh, he did learn some of the social graces, not to any large degree. Uh, but he was certainly a different man than when I first saw him up in Boston. When I first saw him with the Red Sox, he, I guess, didn't weigh over 192 pounds, if he weighed that, and uh, rather thin. Graces, not to any large degree, uh, but he was certainly a different man than when I first saw him up in Boston. When I first saw him with the Red Sox, he, I guess, didn't weigh over 192 pounds, if he weighed that, and uh, rather thin for Babe. Really, they always talk about his toothpick ankles. Actually, his ankles were bigger than my own. But he was so big in frame over the rest of it made his ankles look slim. But uh, up there in Boston, he was just a, just a young fellow and all this was piling in on him and he didn't just know from nothing as the expression goes. He didn't know how much he should be paid as a, as a young fellow. He didn't know. He, all he wanted to do is, is play ball. He just lived for baseball. Just lived for it. Uh, I often think that if the Yankees hadn't paid him $85,000, he'd have played for nothing. He was that kind of a fellow. He'd, he'd rather play baseball than eat. He loved the game, and he loved to find out new things, and it was just a pleasure for him to go out and swing that big bat. And, uh, he didn't demand any special privileges. I saw Ruth in the clubhouse after one World Series when word came down from the front office that one uh, some young fellow shouldn't get a full share of or shouldn't only get a quarter share, saw Ruth stand up on his feet, 
and argue for this young kid, and I don't think he even knew the kid's name. And uh, Ruth argued that that kid should get a full share of the World Series, and by George, the kid got it. And uh, we used to like to uh, go to church with him on Sunday. Ruth would uh, uh, go to church, and uh, he'd have a regular troop going after him because the Protestants and the, you know, on the club and some of the Catholics, and uh, they'd all go alike uh, with Babe because... Babe would uh, give it the gesture grand when he's in church, and they passed the plate. He'd whip out a $50 bill, and and uh, half the church knew, by the way, Ruth put that 50 in the plate, that it was a $50 bill going in there. And then when after church was over, that was the sight, because then Ruth would stand on the steps and autograph uh, different things for a half an hour or more. And say, speaking of that autographing business, uh, that's actually true. I mean, about the Babe being such a good guy with with all the youngsters and with all the, the fans. I mean, uh, Ruth never lost patience with the fans. He was never, uh, never was too busy to do something for the fans. Uh, naturally, there were awesome pests around all the time in baseball and show business, other uh, things like that. that uh, but they're not just the once in a while people. They're the guys that always wanted to get something out of Ruth, trying to use them for a good thing. But uh, they would, I know, another big star on that ball club that used to sneak through the center field fence to avoid the kids and the fans after the ball game was over. But uh, uh, Babe would come right out the clubhouse door and he'd stand there and as many cards as there were, as many kids as there were, and as many grown people as there were, he'd stand there autographing whatever there were until it was over. Well, then later on it got uh, a little burdensome for him and then because the kids would pick up little papers, any little scrap paper in the street and uh, Autograph. He wanted the kids to pick up these little dirty papers and want him to autograph it. Was not wasn't any purpose behind it. There wasn't anything except to say that they uh, got Babe's autograph. It wasn't even that purposeful. It was uh, more or less just to have something to do. So later on, Babe would only autograph scorecards, scorebooks, baseballs, and mementos that he knew that the people considered considered of some value. He was never too tired to do those kind of things. This moving pictures that they made about him now. I understand. I don't know. I haven't seen the picture myself, so I shouldn't be in the position of a critic. I'm not a movie critic. I don't know anything about it. Except they say they overplay this business of Babe going to the hospital and visiting so many kids. He did go to the hospital, and he did visit kids. But uh, the time that he was fined and suspended in St. Louis, don't get the impression that he was fined and suspended for anything that was like missing the ball game. That's uh, because he was running to the hospital for some kid's dog. That's not true. I mean... Uh, let's have the truth about this thing. He just misbehaved in St. Louis and got fined. And that's all there was about it. And uh, to make matters worse, when he finally got home after being fined 5,000 bucks, his chauffeur had run into somebody and caused an accident that cost him two more thousand. And I, those were kind of dog days for the babe. And then I read a piece the other day speaking about him giving a banquet way back around 22 or sometime in there. It might have been later on that they said he did and, uh, but, and acted very contrite about the whole thing. Now, the, the, the year he gave the banquet was in the winter of 1925. And like a big kid, he stood up there in the banquet in front of all these sports writers because he had been getting over cocky and he had been uh, riding the shoots, as you might say, and uh, overplaying everything. And uh, 
He practically stood up there and cried and uh, said that he was going to be a better boy and all this kind of thing, like a big kid. And But the nice thing about Ruth is that he did it. And he had enough willpower and enough and enough guts about the whole thing to turn over a new leaf, and, and he actually did, and he became more popular than ever. There's a funny story about that, too. You know, uh, at one time in Chicago, a little later on, Miller Huggins, our manager, had uh, thought that there were some possibilities of, you know, Babe was kind of chasing around a little again, and they thought maybe Babe was going to kick over the traces, and so... Uh, Miller Huggins went to Mark Roth. He says, Mark, he said, by George. He, Mark was the traveling secretary. He said, by George, Mark. He said, you know, uh, if the babe gets out of hand again, he said, I'm going to have to find him again. It's going to be drastic. Well, uh, Mark said, is that so? When? He said, well, he said, uh, now? Oh, no, Huggins says, no, I'll have to wait and see. So that night, I guess, Babe overstayed the curfew again. He stayed out. We used to have a one o'clock rule. He stayed out after one o'clock, and uh, next day out there at the clubhouse, Miller Huggins uh, said to Mark Roth again, I guess today's the day I got a socket to the big guy again. And, and uh, Roth said this afternoon, he said, no, I guess tonight I'll have to get after him tonight. Babe didn't get out there on time for batting practice. He showed up about a half hour late after our batting practice was over. In the ball game, he hit two home runs and got a couple of other hits. When they got back to the hotel after dinner, Mark Roth, the secretary, and Miller Huggins, the manager, were sitting together in the hotel lobby. Down comes the babe in the white pants and the blue coat and a fancy-looking necktie and all dolled up. He's going out again. And Mark Roth uh, hit Miller Huggins a punch in the ribs. He said, you going to find him now? Now? Well, Huggins got thinking about those two home runs and those four hits. He said, I'll go on with you. <laughs> he couldn't find the guy again. Well, he was, he was a great man. A great man. Uh, fans, just this. It isn't the exploits. Don't think that I am sitting here, please, talking to you, marveling at the alone at the exploits so that I'm uh, building the babe up or trying to build him up just for the his exploits alone. That isn't quite it. He really, if you knew him well, he was a fascinating character. There isn't any doubt about it. I think he's one of the most, I wouldn't know, I mean, about all the fascinating characters in the the world, but certainly he's one of the most outstanding of his time. Uh, He's one of the most outstanding men of his time. You'd have to know know him to appreciate it. I've told that to ballplayers. I've told that to ballplayers and other clubs who didn't know him. We always said that about the babe when... We were playing with him. We'd go around and talk about him to other ball players. In the American League, uh, we'd talk about him. Then when some of the fellows, you'd meet some of the National League fellows, and they wouldn't believe you. They'd say, oh, he's just a guy that hits the ball a long way. All he can do is hit a ball. But when you're in his presence and you're around him a lot and you see the things that occur in his daily life from early morning to late at night, and you could walk into a room and you knew just as well, just the moment you stepped across the threshold, that... Uh, You, you know it's, uh, you'd always know or feel that there was some great presence in the room because he had that magnetism. And you know, Babe wasn't particularly good-looking. He, uh, in, as they say, handsome. Uh, he wasn't particularly a handsome fellow, but there was a certain ruggedness about him uh, that uh, made him attractive to people. And, and the, uh, although his talk was uh, particularly rugged at times, 
Nevertheless, the women, the, the women seemed to like him. They, uh, everybody that met him seemed to be drawn to him he, because he had a warm personality. The, the, he really had uh, kind brown eyes. And, and you look at the big guy and you think, well, by Georgie, it's one of those kind of things you couldn't get mad at. As if you had a big dog that kind of tore up things around the house and he'd give you those sad eyes and, and you couldn't do anything to, the, to, to your dog. You just couldn't take a sock at him because... Uh, the, the dog would look at you with those soulful eyes, and what could you do about it? The big guy was like that. He was like that wherever he went, and the people he met, and the things that he did. And uh, he just led one one hectic life from the time it started, I guess, until one minute after seven this evening. I'd like to say so much. I can't go aboard too much, and I've talked to you now for 50 minutes, I believe, almost 50 minutes. Uh, it just pains me that the big guy is gone. It's kind of a... What can you say? You just say a sad farewell to the fellow. But he's lived his life. He's been a... He entertained a lot of people in his life, brought happiness to a lot of people, and I guess he was happy himself. Let's put it that way. He... He led a happy life, got to a point far beyond anything he ever dreamed of, I guess, as a kid. But I know his pleasure was to entertain people, and he derived a lot of satisfaction out of it. There are many, many stories. The stories are inexhaustible that you can tell about Ruth. I'm sure I could sit here and... But you see, I don't like to leave dead spots in the air. I'd have to think back and rack my memory, and that wouldn't uh, please you, I suppose. But I've talked a good deal now about him, and I've been on the air since... 7.30 tonight, so the fans, you'll hear more about it, and you'll read a lot about it, but just understand this, no matter what you read or hear, there was never one like Babe Ruth, there will never be one again, ever, ever. There might be fellows that'll break his home run record, but they won't have the other side of him. There, will, there might be fellows that'll have the other side of him that won't break his home run record. Oh, and I say that I never saw him make a mistake on the ball field, you might think that's exaggerated. I never did, and I played ten years with him and five years against him. Played in uh, six World Series with him, and I've seen, ever seen him do a lot of things. And you'll never understand just how remarkable that fellow was. There'll never be another Babe Ruth, not while I live, I, I don't think while you live. Well, I hope it wasn't too tough for him when he went out this evening. Finally got him, didn't they? Pretty tough guy to get out, but they finally got him. Well, fans, good night to you all. Thank you for listening. We're going to dispense with the burger commercial tonight, or the burger jingle at the end. And just not so much for you, fans. I don't want to be... I hope you'll share it with me. Let's put it that way, please, but... I'm just going to ask Dick Woods on the control board in there if he, just for the old babe, won't play Old Lang Syne. Good night, everybody.
Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard a great ball player, Wade Hoy, pay tribute to the greatest of them all, Babe Ruth. This is the Burger Beer Baseball Network. <laughs>